the Gospel of John began with an echo of Eden. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Chapter 18 also is an echo of Eden. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Chapter 18 begins the final act that is and was the drama of the life of Christ. And there is life in this story that ends in death. There's hope in this story that ends in hopelessness. There is strength, hope, life for us found in the telling of this story that will end in death. And we are supposed to find our strength, our life, our hope in the telling of the events that occur in this garden. Verse 1 of this chapter is given to us to move us away from that upper room. The final meal of Christ, eaten with his disciples prior to his betrayal, prior to the arrest, torture, and death. And that final meal where he clarified the hour that was now upon them. And from the very beginning in the Gospel of John, Jesus has spoken of this hour. The first time we hear of it is back in chapter 2 at the wedding feast when Mary, his mother, comes to him to fix the problem of running out of wine. There he tells her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And the fulfilling of his hour, the one that is upon them now, happened in John chapter 12, verses 20 through 23. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This was the catalyst that set up that upper room discourse, the night of last night's. And the, and the clock of this hour really started ticking when they crossed that brook Kidron and entered into this garden. Jesus loved his father. And for this reason, he did all that he saw him doing. This is scripture. This is what John chapter 5, verse 19 tells us. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only that which he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, so the son does likewise. When I tell you that Jesus loved his father and for this reason obeyed the word of God, when I tell you that, that's shocking to your ears. Understanding that Jesus was submitted to the word over his will is important in understanding the events that happen in this garden. And if you listen to how Jesus explained what doing that which his father showed him actually looks like, you will see the importance of the word of God in his life. How often do we read in the gospel accounts Jesus doing something that then it says this happened in order that scripture might be fulfilled. The gospel of Matthew begins with the fulfilling of scripture be, um, being the center of the story of Christ. Matthew 2, 1 through 6. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, came from to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Do you see the supremacy of the word there? And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The protection of the infant Jesus was at the command and submission to the word of God, as told to us in Matthew 2, 13 through 15. And even to the end of his earthly life, Jesus lived by the word. As he's hanging on the cross in John 19, verse 28, 
this is what we're told. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. The Gospel of John even begins by tying the Word of God with the person of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 14, we're told, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glorious from the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's because all Scripture does bear witness of Jesus, because he is the Word, and because he is from the Father, and is full of grace and truth, that the final hour of his life takes us back to that first hour in the life of man. It takes us back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put a man whom he had formed. And out of the ground Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's verses 8 through 10. And then beginning in verse 15, we're told, Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God took this man, Adam, a man made perfect in his image, and placed him in a perfect garden. And then he gave this man his word. He set limits on this man, boundaries for this man, and he used his word as those limits and boundaries. And we can see from the verse that I just quoted out of John that the Father has also done the same thing for the Son, the second Adam. Jesus didn't come to do his own will. He didn't do his own will. He submitted to the will of the Father. And another correlation between the first and the second Adam, the Father also gave to these, to these people, to these men, a people. The first Adam, a helper was given, who was taken from his side and to whom he loved and adored. To the second Adam, a people have been given, John 17, 9. The difference is that Eve was formed out of Adam. Her life came out of his. In the second Adam, we are formed in him. Our life is found in him. John 1.4 And the garden motifs don't end there. It was in the garden that death first entered into the world, Genesis 3. And it will be in the garden that death of Christ on the cross will happen as well, John 19.41. In the first garden, provision for death was made in covering the treasonous Adam and Eve with the skins of animals. And it is in the garden that the resurrection from the dead will occur, making the final and eternal provision for the treasonous sons of Adam as well. In the first garden, Adam loved the created more than the creator, and he didn't obey. He didn't esteem the word above himself and his emotions. And for this reason, when Eve, being deceived by the serpent, took of the fruit and ate, thereby separating herself from God and Adam, he, Adam, chose. He willingly chose the created over the creator. He chose his fleshly desire over the eternal life that is found in the word. He chose to eat of the fruit and align himself with her and his new master, instead of obeying and submitting to the one that created him, who manifested life to him, and he died. And his death separated him and all his offspring from the word, from life. In the second garden, the second Adam chose the creator over the creation. He, even himself, the only begotten Son of God, the second Adam, adored his Father. So he submitted to his word and obeyed his every command. And he died. And his death brought reconciliation for the world to his Father. His death canceled the record of debt for all the sons of Adam that had been given him. 
Colossians 2, 14 and 15. The first Adam, or the first garden, was the, were the place where death was born out of life. The second garden was the place that life was born out of death, where the first Adam failed because of treason and, re- and betrayal. The second Adam succeeds because of the love for the Father, for the love of the Word. And he was betrayed by a son of that treasonous Adam. Which verse 2 of chapter 18 is meant to convey. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Verses 1 and 2 aren't just given us to move us from the upper room. They're not just given us as information so that we can place in our heads where Jesus and his disciples were and what was about to happen. They're also given us to cause us to see and then to wonder. Jesus often went to this garden, a garden that was framed by a stream, just like the original garden was, a garden where life was found, where God was manifested, and where the word was given. And a garden where Judas, who betrayed him, came, just as his father, Adam, who betrayed God, also came. And we are meant to see and understand that we are in these gardens. We are there with Jesus in that last garden. And we are there with God in the first garden. In the first, we are the treasonous betrayer, Adam. And in the second, we are the treasonous betrayer, Judas. This is who we are. We want to see ourselves as a misguided and often hard-headed disciples. We hear of their actions. The time that Peter tried to rebuke Jesus the time that they didn't get the meaning of their teachings or his praying or miracles, and we desire to see us. Yeah, I'm just like Peter. I'm hard-headed and impetuous. Yeah, I'm just like Thomas, a doubter. Yeah, I'm like John. I'm a lover. But the reality is that outside of the Father giving these men to the Son, outside of the Spirit living alongside of them, regenerating their hearts, they would have been in that garden on that night. Only they would have been standing beside Judas and not Jesus. And the same is true for each of us. This is the reality of who we are outside of God. And then verses 3 and 4 move the events of the garden along. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? In verse 3, our focus is moved from from Jesus to Judas, and we hear of the betrayer who is now emboldened by who he has alongside of him. Not just a detachment of Roman soldiers, but also some religious leaders, Jews and Gentiles, under a banner that Jesus was, was carrying. Betrayal, treason, treachery. They could get behind this banner. This banner, they could support it and come together under its common cause. And the reason for that remains to this day, because they hate God. And these men, these powerful men, influential men, men who would ordinarily never even deem to talk to such as Judas, they were all following his lead. His 15 minutes of fame were now at hand. He finally had made it to the show. He was the man at that moment. And everyone was listening to him. And if proved to himself that he was right, that his actions were correct and just, he had people following him. But then in verse 4, John returns the focus of the events of this garden back to the one who actually set them in motion, back to Jesus. And we once again see the Savior of the world leading by example. He knew. He knew all that would happen to him. He knew of the coming torture, the coming pain and anguish that would ravage him to the very core of his being. And he knew the awful reality that his father, for the first time in all history, will turn his back on him and hurl the wrath 
for the sin of the first Adam. And every human that it all, for all eternity that had been given to him, they would hurl that wrath on him. Their sin, my sin, your sin. And the Father, because of the love that defines him, hurled with extreme prejudice his full wrath on his Son. He made him who knew no sin to become sin in order that we could become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. These men, Judas, the soldiers, the priests, they all came to arrest Jesus. But by verse 4, we can see it was Jesus who arrested them with one single question. Whom do you seek? What follows next is the explanation of verse 5 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John that says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. They came in their perceived power. He questioned them in real power. They came to do what they thought they had the power to do. He submitted to the true power that allowed them to arrest him, torture him, and kill him. The power that would raise him from the dead and reconcile that first Adam. In verses 5 through 8, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. First, what Jesus said to them back in verse 5 or verse 4 can be translated as, I am he or I am. The original Greek is ambiguous. It can be translated either way, I am or I am he. Half of the English translations have it one way. Half of the English translations have it the other. But listen how the Aramaic Bible in plain English has translated verse 5. They were saying to him, Yeshua the Nazarene. And Yeshua said to them, I am the living God. But Yehuda, the traitor, was also standing with them. On one side of this conflict stood Jesus, the I am. And on the other side stood the Roman soldiers with their weapons, the religious leaders with their law. And Judas is told to be standing there as well. And once again, he's named. And then given that title, the betrayer, aligning him and revealing to us that it was just not these two groups that were united against Jesus, but the betrayer was with them as well. In fact, he was the one that was leading and guiding the one that was leading and guiding these two groups. And just as the betrayer was in the original garden, deceiving Eve and leading Adam into separation, death, and destruction, he was in this garden as well. Saints, I want you to ask yourself a question. Think on this. How is it? that Jesus could stand up to what was confronting him at that moment. How do you do that? Where do you get the moral, the moral fortitude to be actually be able to do this? Was it because he knew how it would all end? How was he able to do this? He did it because he led by example. He did what Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 tells us to do. Finally, be strong in the Lord and, and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having, all, and having done all to, all to stand firm, stand therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given of the gospel of peace. 
In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith by which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying in all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. If you think that Jesus was able to stand that day because he knew how it would all end, the question that I have for you is, do you not know the same thing? Are you not aware of how all this is going to end? 1 John 3, 1 through 3 tells us, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Jesus was able to stand up to this mob, to the spiritual forces of darkness, because he knew two people. He knew the Father, who is life, eternal life, and he knew who he is in the Father, with the Father. The reason that we can't stand when confronted is because we don't know these two people. We don't know the Father, who is life, eternal life, and the Son, Jesus Christ. And we don't know who we are. You're sitting there thinking, I'm going to have to call you in a technical foul there, David, because that's three people, not two. The father's not the son, the son is not the father, and I'm not either one of them. So technically, that's three people, not two. But technically, the life, the eternal life that is found in knowing the father and the son was given by the father to the son who now gives us that life. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in him, John 5, 26. And we don't know who we are in the Father and the Son. This is why we can't stand. But verse 6 reveals the reality of who we really, who really held all authority in that garden. The group of men that came seek to seek Jesus of Nazareth that, that group could have numbered up to 600 men. You think about that. That's a mob. They came in force to overwhelm this little band of 12 to arrest the one. And they were certain of, the, of their ability to overcome these men. That with that force that was with them, that they could win that day. But with one single spoken sentence, the one who had real authority, the only true authority, reveals to them that they are hopelessly outnumbered, not by the twelve, but by one. The power behind the words spoken by him also lend weight to the understanding that what he said back in verse 4 was, I am, not that I am he. He wasn't self-identifying. He found himself in who he was in the Father. What about us? Where do we find our worth? Where do we find our strength, our value? In ourselves, because of who we are, because of what we can do? Or in him, because of who he says that we are? Because of who we are in him, by him, through him, and even for him? Our lives are not holy because we don't allow the words to master us. We worry about almost everything, even though we're told, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough, enough trouble of its own, Matthew 6.34. And, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on it. How much time do we actually think about those two things? For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. For all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek the kingdom and these things will be added to you. 
Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that where does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Luke 12. And then Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Don't be anxious about anything. That pretty much covers everything. But in everything, be by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, this is the promise, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We claim to be Christians, which makes Christ our king, Jesus our master. But then we live practically as atheists. Deciding for ourselves, worrying about this thing in life, fretting over things, trinkets, sitting on his throne over our life, even though we are told, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a place and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, your boast is your arrogance. And such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James 4. 13 through 17. But this wasn't the reality for Jesus. He lived submitted to authority. And by the authority granted him, by the only true power of the Father, the Son slew them by the Spirit with the spoken word. And while they were still on the ground, he once again asked them the same question. He did in verse 4. Whom do you seek? He was the authority in that garden. They were not. And he demonstrated that he was in control of the events, all the events that surrounded this, the most grievous sin for all eternity. This was his hour. It was his. He knew all that was happening. And he knew that it was all the divine will and preordained plan of God. And once again, we can know this in our lives as well. We can have the same confidence that we can have the same power in our lives if we would only get into the word and allow it to master us. If we do, once we do, we will find that the same father that loves the son loves us. The same son that spoke the world into existence still speaks to us. And the same spirit that empowered creation and recreation still is empowering us. And we can know that whatever is before us really is for our good and for his glory. And his answer back to them the second time begins with I am as he quickly disassociates himself from the disciples. They may have been his, but they weren't him. He came to save them from the wrath of his father. He could most certainly save them from the wrath of this crowd. He alone would face this mob, take on this hour, and vanquish this enemy. And the supremacy of the word in the life of Christ is once again highlighted by verse 9. Verse 9 says, This was to fulfill the word that had been spoken. Of those who you gave me, I have not lost one. Back in the prayer to his father, found in chapter 17, Jesus said, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, supremacy of the word over his life. And when John, I want you guys to think about this. When John penned this gospel, he was an old man. He had seen the rest of the apostles murdered in their faith. 
He had been witness to the dispersion of the Christians from Jerusalem. He himself had suffered physically for his faith, and yet he knew that Jesus had not lost one of those that the Father had given him. Those that the Father and the Son, through the Holy Spirit, had given life to. They had suffered. They had been killed. But they still lived just as Christ lives. John, as he reflected back on his life, on the events that had transpired as he walked with Jesus, the events of this night and of those that happened on the day of Pentecost and forward, understood that this thing that we possess in our flesh is not the thing that Jesus called life. It's not the thing that he has kept us in or even kept us for. But this life, this merely human life, is for glory. That we, the elect of God, should shine his life, his light, reflect his glory in a world that hates him, denies him, desires to kill him, as they live merely human lives. Zombies, the walking dead, because they have killed themselves through sin. They are the ones that Paul spoke of in Romans 9.22 when he said, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And this is, but this is the message of the Bible. Listen. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be his, like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to sub subject all things to himself. The keeping of all those that are given by or given the Son by the Father has very little to do with what happens to us in this realm. And everything to do with what happens in the kingdom of God, in the heavenly, in the real. And very often the things that he preordains to happen to us in this realm are not those things that we would willingly choose to have happen to us. Amen? And we once again, we get to see Peter acting in this realm. In his flesh. But for the glory of God. But that wasn't the intention of Peter in verses 10 through 12. Then Simon Peter, having drew a sword, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Simon Peter could see all that was going on. He had been made completely irrelevant by Jesus in this encounter. He stood alongside the other ten men and watched as Jesus stood alone against the combined forces of evil, led by the deceiver and guided by the son of destruction. He heard all that Jesus had said, had said and still he decided, I had better act. Why did he act? Was it because he was concerned about Jesus? Did he actually think that he was going to protect Jesus? Had he ever protected him? Had he ever provided for him? Kept him? But now he decides to do this? Why? Could it be that he was concerned with what would be said of him later when this story was retold? Let me get this straight, Peter. So you just stood there and did nothing? Didn't you have a weapon? I thought you were the man. I thought you were a real man. But the truth is that, me, that Peter was acting merely human. In the retelling and the events of the life of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told of what happened right after Peter proclaimed, Lord, who shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Right after that, Matthew 16 tells us, 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but at the things of man. And even earlier that night, when Jesus came to wash his feet, it was Peter who proclaimed, you're never going to wash my feet, John 13, 8. And it will be Peter who, in just a few short hours from now, will deny that he even knows Jesus. And it will be Peter who, in just a day or so, will decide that the gig is up and I'm going back fishing. And it will be Peter who, even after Christ appears, to the wandering, sinning apostles and provides not only a huge catch of fish for them but also a breakfast waiting for them, even after that. And the questioning if he even loves Jesus, even after that, he still doesn't get it. To the point that he questions Jesus concerning the events of his life in comparison to the life of John. That's John chapter 21. Peter In fact, none of the disciples understood that the life that Christ lived was one that was given for them in order that they would be able to have true life. And the reason that they didn't get it, could not get it, was up until that point, up until the day of Pentecost, they had not been given the Spirit of God living inside of them, making them truly alive for the first and last time. But this is not true of us we have no excuse we have been given the spirit of god living inside of us we have been given this new life the life that is real the life that will never end the life that is found in knowing the father and the son we have this life which means that we are able to see able to determine able to understand that the life of the humans in this world, that the life that we used to have is not the same as the life that is found in Christ, the one that he has kept us in. It's not the same as the life that we will live eternally in, which is why after Peter acted in his flesh, Jesus once again stepped in to take the focus off the human and place it back to where it belongs in the heavenly. When he said, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter was concerned about what the world was doing to Jesus, but he couldn't see that what was transpiring was not about what they were doing to him, but what he was doing for the world. He couldn't grasp the meaning behind the Son being the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Place yourself in the sandals of those disciples. They loved this man, Jesus, the one that they had come to know to be the Son of God, the Holy One of God. And they were shocked earlier in that night that they found out that one of them would betray him. And now the reality of that betrayal was now confronting them. There stood the betrayer. He's aligning himself with the enemies of the one that he used to walk with, eat with, laugh with, and say that he loved. There stood the betrayer who had brought these soldiers, these religious leaders, and his master to arrest the man that they loved. And how they must have hated this betrayer. Which is why we are given verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Well, back in verse 3, we're told of the band that came to arrest Jesus on that night. But in verse 3, there is no captain mentioned. The Gentiles are mentioned in that verse, in both verses, the Roman soldiers. The chief priests and the Pharisees are listed in both. But in verse 12, there is now a captain that is being highlighted. In the ESV, we're told that he is the captain of the band of soldiers. But in the KJV, the King James Version, has this commander or captain as being not over, I'm sorry, being over the Jews, not the Roman soldiers. 
And the New American Standard Version has this verse translated like this. So the Roman cohort, the commander, and the officer of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So which is it? It, it seems like a contradiction within the Bible. This single man, this captain, couldn't have been commander over the Romans and of the religious leaders. Why are, are there different versions? Why are there these different versions making him out to be the leader of one group and then the other? The reason is because in the, a, in the NASB, as they translate it, that's correct. The original Greek doesn't say which he is commander of. It just says that he's commander. So the translator help us out in trying to figure out which one he's commander of. Some saying he's commander of the Jews. Some saying he's commander of the, of the Pharisees. They should have just left the original text alone. Because there was a betrayal that happened in this garden. These men who have come to arrest Jesus are proof of this fact. But this betrayal could not have happened, would not have happened, if there had not been an original betrayal that happened in the original garden. And in both gardens, there are three players, man, Satan, God. In the original garden, man and Satan are the ones that are seen being the actors in it. God gives the command not to eat. Man willfully chooses to make himself like God and chose to align himself with his wife and his new master, Satan. In the second garden, we will see the same three players as well. Man, Satan, God. Here in this garden, it is once again man who is seen to be the actor, the soldiers, the religious leaders, the betrayer, and even the disciples. And the deceiver is also on the scene, having entered into Judas, his slave. And we see God in the midst of all of this as well. But we think, that it's Jesus who is God in this second garden. God was in that second garden. And yes, Jesus is God, the exact image of his Father, equal in glory and might, the same in substance and power. But he is not the commander that is mentioned in verse 12. The Father is. Wait, are you saying that the Father betrayed the Son? That he's thrown in with those that hate the son and that will kill him? Saints, think about this. The reality is, is, the reality is that the, while the father never betrayed the son, never for a single instance in all of time ever stopped loving the son, this was the sovereign will of the father and the son and the spirit. And he is the commander that is over the betraying Roman soldiers. He is the commander that is over the betraying religious leaders. And he is the commander over the betraying Judas. And he is commander over the betraying Lucifer, who is now known as the son of destruction, the evil one, the ruler of this world, Satan. The commander is listed in verse 12 because the betrayal of Jesus is the worst sin that had occurred up until that point in human history. It outstripped even the first betrayal in the original garden. There, Adam, who was the first son of God, looked at Eve and chose her over God. In the second garden, Judas looked at Jesus, the son of God, the one that he called rabbi, the one that could reattach an ear to a man instantly, the one that could turn water into wine, that could heal lepers, that could bring people back to life, the one alone who had the words of life. He, Judas, could look at this one and betray him, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And he could do this because this was the preordained will of God, as told to us in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4. Saints, the betrayal of Christ was fulfilled in the second garden, but the betrayal began in the first garden. And in both gardens, the commander reigned uh, um, sovereignly supreme. Saints, wonder at your God. Don't be content with that easy Jesus that is propagated in those places that tell their people that he died for everyone. That he's not sovereign over the free will of man. 
the one that is soft and warm and cuddly, who looks like Fabio and acts like Joel Osteen. Your God is amazing in his majesty and holiness. The deception and betrayal in the second garden are his sovereign will. And outside of the deception and betrayal of the Son of Man, of, of the deception, the Son of Man would not have been lifted up on the cross of Calvary and would not have atoned for the betrayal of the original Adam and all those that had been given to him by his Father. But the plan of salvation was put in place long before he ever said, let there be light. He is the commander who knows, who directs, who leads. He is the God over Satan, over the Roman soldiers, over the religious leaders, over all those who hate him and act in trying to kill and destroy him. And he uses their actions, allows and even ordains those actions. He allowed and ordained these actions for our good, but most importantly for his glory. Think about this. Outside of the first betrayal, if that had never happened, the eternal heavenly beings could never have known the depth and the breadth and the reach of the love of God in allowing the original betrayal to take place. Followed by the care of these merely human treasonous rebels. And then the redemption of those that betray this holy God. Through the stepping down of the son of God into his creation. Becoming a man who emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even the death on a cross. Therefore. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every name shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 5-11. And there's one more thing that we should take away from the betrayal in both of these gardens. There will, there will, there will, there will be times in our lives that we are facing things that are overwhelming. Impossible. There will be times in our lives when we will hear hard news. It's cancer. We've lost a business. The baby's died. I hope, dear saints, that you can wonder at the love of God in redeeming you. The cost that he paid and the love that he showed. And I hope that you can find comfort in the fact that every single little thing that you will ever face is his preordained plan for you. And he loves you. This may be hard. But keep looking at your Savior, at the love and the courage that he demonstrated in this garden. Focus on him. Learn of him. Fall in love with him. And this happens through the word. And in that very same word, we find who we are because of who we are in the word. And we're told how we live in this new life and what this new life is we are given the power to obey the faith to obey what is what is in front of you may be impossible it may even be wrong but remember the betrayal in both the first and the second garden what faced jesus was impossible and was more than wrong don't focus on what is the reality in front of you. Focus on the reality that is in you. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. And we know, saints, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is what he's doing now. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He did that so that we would he be his brothers. And those he, who he predestined, he's called. And those he called, he justified. That's the death of Christ on the cross. He justified us. He paid our sins, as Clayton said so well. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Saints, if he loves you, and because he loves you, he is going to keep you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's what Christ is doing now. Saints, you may feel like this is impossible, but Christ, your Savior, he sits at the Father's right hand, interceding for you. Listen, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am sure, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is who we are. This is why we are to see ourselves in this garden. Why this is so important. We have to see the price that was paid to purchase us so that we can know that these things that are facing us are not bigger than us. Because we are in him. And he loves us. He is demonstrating that to us right here, right now. Christ loves you, saints. And he's done this for his glory and for our good. Revel in who you are in this amazing Savior that is able to stand up to this mob because he knew who he was. Let's pray.